0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our study through the Book of Acts. We're calling it We Are All Witnesses, Part 2. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts, and get ready to study God's Word with us. Good morning. It's great to see you uh, here at Rolling Meadows. For those of you who are joining us online, it's great to have you join us as well. Listen, you're going to need to have a Bible today. You're going to need to open it to Acts, Chapter 7. Um, I'm going to try to do the whole chapter here, but we're especially focusing on uh, verses 54 to 60. So we'll be summarizing some of the front end, and then at the end, we'll get into some of the details of the passage itself. Um, while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. It's, um, it's a very important story. It's probably one that you've never heard before, though. Um, it's very important because in the early church, it was maybe one of the most famous Stories that anybody had heard. And when I say story, I don't mean like a, you know, three pigs story that didn't happen. It was actually about a martyrdom uh, of a woman named Perpetua. She was a young woman and uh, she committed her life to Christ and kept that confession all the way to the end, even in the midst of some of the most dire and difficult circumstances. People today have a mixed response to. What she did, which is probably saying more about us than it does about her. But let me tell you what happened with Perpetua. Here's how this story goes. Uh, we have little idea what brought Perpetua to faith in Christ or how long she had been a Christian or how she lived her Christian life. <clears throat> Thanks to her diary and that of another prisoner, we have some idea of her last days. It was an ordeal that so impressed the famous Augustine that he preached four sermons about her death. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who, at the turn of the third century, lived with her husband, her son, and her slave, Felicitas, in Carthage, which is modern Tunis. So we're talking about North Africa here, right? So these are African Christian brothers and sisters who, by the way, are basically the brothers and sisters on whose shoulders we stand. Most people don't know that. The most influential people sometimes in the Christian church in its early days were black people, which is unbelievably uh, underrated these days. But in North Africa, Augustine and this woman, she was, uh, she, she was an African sister. It's uh, no surprise then in this North African, vibrant North African Christian community, that when Emperor Septimius Severus determined to cripple Christianity, he believed uh, that it undermined the Roman patriotism. That's why he wanted to cripple it. He focused his attention on North Africa. Among the first to be arrested were five new Christians taking classes to prepare for baptize, baptism, one of them was Perpetua. Her father immediately came to her in prison. He was a pagan and he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself. He entreated her simply to just deny that she was a Christian. Father, do you see this vase? Vase, 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 vase. Yeah, okay, we're going with vase. Could it be anything other than what it is no he replied well neither can I be called anything other than what I am a Christian in the next days Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison and allowed her which allowed her to breastfeed her child with her hearing approaching her father visited again this time pleading more passionately have pity on my gray head Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father, if if I favored you above all your brothers, if I've raised you to reach this prime of your life, have pity. He threw himself down before her and kissed her hands. Do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers, think of your mother and your aunt, think of your child, who will not be able to live once you're gone. Give up your pride, Perpetua. Perpetua was touched, but remained unshaken. She tried to comfort her father. It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but we are all in his power but he did walk out of the prison dejected. The day of the hearing arrived, Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor, Hilarianus. Perpetua's friends were questioned first and each in turn admitted to being a Christian and each in turn refused to make a sacrifice as an act of emperor worship. And then the governor turned to question Perpetua. At that moment, her father, carrying Perpetua's son in his arms, burst into the room. He grabbed Perpetua and pleaded, Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Hilarionis, probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who still nursed a child, added, Have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. Perpetua replied simply, I will not. Are you a Christian then? asked the governor. Yes, I am, Perpetua replied. Her father interrupted again, begging her to sacrifice, but Hilarianus had heard enough. He ordered soldiers to beat him into silence. He then condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, and her slave, Felicitas, who had subsequently been arrested, similarly for being a Christian, they were all dressed in belted tunics, and when they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor And in the stands, crowds roared to see blood. They didn't have to wait for long. Immediately, a wild bull charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted adjusted her ripped tunic, and walked over to help Felicitas. And then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood but this was all too deliberate for the impatient crowd which began calling for the death of the christians so perpetua felicitas and friends were lined up and one by one they were slain by the sword It's really interesting is that I've read that story, I don't know how many different settings, and uh, it's always interesting how, like I said before, how people respond to it. Some people in the modern world are like, what are you doing? Why don't you just make the sacrifice? But one of the things that you do see here is that the commitment to Christ, especially in the early church, was immovable. To, to, to recant, to pull back, to deny him, even in the, deep, the critical hour, it was the was just not going to happen. So this story about Perpetua fueled the mission of God all over the place. Her blood goes into the ground. And as many said afterwards, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And it, it sprouted everywhere else. Christian after Christian after Christian was like, if Perpetua can do that, so can I. And the attempts to try to kill the church with... That kind of persecution just did not work. It seemed to actually breed Christian. It's amazing the power of of an example like that. She wasn't the first, though. Uh, When you look down through the history of martyrdom in the Christian church, the first martyr was a guy named Stephen. We can read about him in Acts chapter 7 which is what we're going to do here in the next couple of minutes, at the end of chapter 6 and then into Acts chapter 7, we actually meet this guy. And his story, just so you know, just like Perpetua's story, became uh, the fuel, in many cases, for Christian witness all over the place. You and I would not be where we are today, sitting here in this church, had Stephen not remained faithful. So let's find out. What happened to this dear brother? In this passage, Luke, is who's writing it, is really trying to lay Stephen out as like a model disciple. And so what we're going to learn here are three things about what true discipleship looks like, okay? What it genuinely looks to fo- like to follow Jesus. So here, I'm, I'm going to go one by one, right? So the first of the three is uh, true discipleship requires profession matched by practice. True discipleship, requires profession matched by practice. Okay, so now I've got to give you a, a lead-in to the, to the verses that we're going to deal with. Let's, I'm going to deal with Stephen and his speech. At the beginning of um, the book of Acts, if you look at the way it's laid out, one of the things that you you realize is that, okay, there seem to be two parties involved here. There seem to be these apostles or disciples, and they are performing miracles and doing amazing things and preaching the gospel. And then there's the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the captain of the temple guard, and they are opposing the the disciples and the apostles. And so the Sanhedrin calls the disciples in at one point, Peter and John, and they, they, they say, don't preach anymore in this name, right? So they put them on trial, and then, of course, they go out and they preach in the name again, and then they pull them back in. And they say, don't do this anymore. In fact, we're going to put you in prison. They put them in prison and then they're released by an angel in the middle of the night. And then they go back and they preach some more. And then the Sanhedrin comes and gets them again and puts them on trial. You get the idea, right? So the whole idea is that the Christians are on trial and the authority is in the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. They, the Christians, need to give an answer for why it is that they are denigrating the real, true tradition of the Jewish people. That's the way it's set up. Stephen is the next in line for that, but there's a twist in Stephen's story. And I'm going to give it away, right? It's like six cents. It's not the disciples who are on trial it's the Jewish religious leaders who are. Stephen's point in his speech is, oh, you, you guys think you have authority and you can pass it on us? No, 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 no. no. Jesus has authority and you're standing in the dock. So he tells this story basically uh, in Acts 7-1. But before we get there, I want to help me. This is the way it describes him. Stephen, full of grace and power, he was doing great wonders and signs among the people and then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. This is probably a a, a description of, a description of a really smart group of people, okay? They're not like just normal Jewish people. The synagogue of the freedmen was really really hoity-toity and smart. They could argue really well. And the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up, this group of Jews, and they disputed with Stephen. That's, an, that's a word for an argument. They were like, oh, let's have a debate. We think that you can't answer the critiques that we have against you, right? And so this is like the atheist coming in against the Christian, or another, Jew, another religious tradition coming into the Christian. Let's have a debate in front of all the people, and we'll prove that you're just wrong about this. So they have this disputation with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, he won all the time. They would come after him, and like Jesus, he just kept winning. Undefeated. They couldn't handle it. And of course, if you've had a debate with someone before, and they, get, they keep losing over and over again, they end up thinking to themselves, you know, maybe debate and words are not the best thing. Maybe we could actually try to lie about them or, and actually physically hurt them. And so they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. You remember Moses? He's our best guy. And against God. We've heard him speak horrible things about Moses. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him, and they seized him, they brought him before the council, right? We're back with the council again. <laughs> and they set up false witnesses who said, "You know, um, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, the holy place being the temple and the law being the law of Moses. We've heard him. I swear he've heard him. Well, maybe I haven't heard him, but I heard somebody who heard him, and they said that he did that. You should totally believe us. They're lying. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, he's going to destroy this place. This place is the temple. And he's going to change the customs, again, that Moses delivered. You don't want anybody to change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That's what makes us holy. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest said, what's your answer Stephen now if you're a preacher of the gospel this is your favorite question in the world you're like oh okay a pulpit let's go and so Stephen's he he starts out oops that's not actually where I want you to go but I'll have you see in just a second at the end and here's his argument throughout the entire passage right you guys keep talking about Moses and about how he's on your side And you talk about the law and all these sorts of things. Let's go through the history of Israel. And here's what I'm going to prove to you. That every time the word of the Lord came to a servant of the Lord, the Jewish people rejected it. The pattern in the entirety of our history, says Stephen, is the word of the Lord coming to a servant of the Lord, pronouncing it to the people who should listen to it, and they reject it and at times kill them. So Joseph gets a word from the Lord about a dream that he has and he shares it with his brothers and his brothers say, we don't like your dream and so we're going to actually sell you into slavery. Hoping that he of course will die and they report it to his dad that he was dead. Word of the Lord comes Joseph. He gets rejected. Later on, uh, Moses who is growing up in Pharaoh's household. He sees a a couple of Hebrews that are fighting, or uh, Hebrews fighting with an Egyptian, and the Egyptian is winning. And so, so so Moses comes over and he beats up the Egyptian and kills him, defending the Hebrew. The next day, two Hebrews are fighting, and he shows up and he says, hey guys, let's not fight. And one of them says to him, oh, are you gonna hurt us like you killed that Egyptian? Thereby rejecting him. And he goes off into the wilderness forever. Word of the Lord, right? The Lord comes to this man and he tries to express his devotion to God by freeing the people. And yet they don't want any part of it. Later on, he goes to a burning bush and he's standing there and God says, go and tell Pharaoh to get lost. Go tell the people. And you remember, right, 10 plagues. They go across the Red Sea. They go to a mountain. God comes to the mountain. He delivers the law on the top of the mountain. Moses is receiving the law of God. And down in the valley, the Jewish people are what? Building a golden calf. We need a God to take care of us like the ones in Egypt because Moses took off. We don't know where he is. At the very moment, this is Stephen saying, at the very moment that you're receiving this big thing, the law, the things you count on more than anything else, you are rejecting the God who is giving it. You think that you have the temple in your midst. You think that that's a sign. Well, we have the temple. God's clearly with us. Look at the building, He lives there. We have the law. He's revealed to us, unlike he's revealed to everyone else. Look at the things that we have on the outside. We are God's people. And Stephen's like, are you? Are you God's people? Then he finishes his sermon in a way that you probably shouldn't finish sermons. You know, as a general rule, if you don't want to get hurt, don't don't use this line. you stiff-necked people, okay? It's not you... When I was uh, interviewing for different church positions in my life, I've never started with that, with that line. But apparently he thought it was a good idea. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hard in heart and ears, listen to his argument, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It's like your national identity to resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep Do you hear his argument? His argument is, you think that you're on God's side because you have the temple and the law and Moses? All of those speak out against you because your actions betray you. You're a big talker with all the big show. We've got all the stuff, but behind all of it, you're wicked. You're wicked, and God will judge you. And so they all repented and went home and lived happily ever after, right? Well, look, um, they did what you expect when they heard these things. Now, notice, notice the escalation in their response. They were enraged, and then they ground their teeth at him. I hate you so much! But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. You see it elevating? Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. So here's the question I have for you. You see this weird thing. They, they go from, oh, I'm so mad at you, to actually rushing him, gathering him, and stoning him. What happened in the middle? You ever get in an argument with somebody? I mean, probably not, maybe in your marriage, which I'm sure is only having once or twice. But you know, if, if you, I've had a few arguments. And so here's what happens. Sometimes things are going calm, and they're just, oh, they're really mad. But there's something that you do or say that launches it into another level, into a stratosphere. What is that thing? What is the thing that he says that launches them from being, oh, I'm just really angry like I was with everybody else in the G- Peter and John to, oh, I'm we're killing you. Mob rule. And the answer to the question is right here. Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. And he said, he sees the vision, and then he reports it. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that sends them into the stratosphere. What in the world is that? Why is that such a big thing? Well, um, Psalm 110 This is one of the most important Psalms in the early church because they believed it expressed the power and authority of Jesus Christ. So here's where the language of at my right hand comes. The Lord, this is the Father, says to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, the Father, sends forth from Zion your, the Son's, mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemy. The Lord, the Son, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, <laughs> do, do you guys see it? There's a whole big debate about what, what, so why is Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God when Peter, when uh, sorry, when Stephen sees him? Some people are like, well, he's given Stephen a standing ovation. Probably not, probably not. I mean, that's great. He's standing at the right hand of the throne of God because he has uh, stood up just like, Uh, Your dad, like I said, a few weeks ago, just like your dad stood up when you and your brothers got really mad at each other and started wrestling too hard, and dad stands up and says, okay, it's done, right? It's time for Papa to execute the judgment. And so he says, here's what I see. I see the son being in the position of judge and you being in the position of his enemy, which sends them into this stratosphere. But here's, I gotta... You can see his point. What he's basically trying to say is look, those people who think that they are on God's side because they do religious rituals and have all the religious trappings, but who do not obey the God they profess to follow, are not the friends of God, but his enemies. Seems to me that's a really important thing for us to think about. Especially in a culture where, you know, our history is to surround ourselves with religious trappings. Christian people these days, we put crosses in our homes and we have, you know, attendance at church and we give money to the church. And if we say to somebody, are you a religious committed person? They'll say, yes, of course I am. And they'll point to these religious Duties, and maybe even to their family line. Well, my father was a Christian and his father was a pastor and his father was a pastor. Or they point to their own position. I'm a pastor. I was called. They'll say, those things make me real, legit. No, no. The thing that makes you legit is your obedience To the Lord you profess. You say he's Lord, but do you treat him as Lord? I was in Beijing in 2007, which is a year before the Summer Olympics, the first Summer Olympics in Beijing, 2008. And they had, um, I didn't know this, the whole downtown, they had these beautiful like fronts of buildings, beautiful. I was like, wow, Beijing's pretty magnificent. The guy I was with said, oh, Just get a little closer, and he did. You walked up to these fronts of buildings and you realized that they were false fronts. I mean, they're really nice. They weren't just pictures. They actually had built a front of a building. They could walk up the steps, but if you went through the door, what you would find beyond the door was an entire empty lot of what used to be a bunch of people living in the dirt and squalor, but they had shipped them out to the suburbs of the city so that the city would look nicer for the Olympics. I walked up to one of them and I peered. They had a little gap between one building and the other fake building and I looked through it and there were tents and all sorts of people and the military was going through there at the time and they were grabbing people and pulling them away. So here's the picture. It looked magnificent and everything was put together but the closer that you got, you realized, oh, this is just a straight lie. Man, I've met Christians like that. Christians. Yeah. Look at all the stuff I do and how magnificent I am. I have this great history of doing great things for the Lord. And then you get a little bit closer and you're like, man, you don't obey the Lord, do you? There's this uh, language in the book of Romans that Paul brackets the beginning of Romans and the end of Romans with a phrase. And the phrase is his goal. Like You came to Paul and you said, what are you trying to do when you go and preach the gospel? What is the product supposed to be? What is the goal? This is the phrase he uses. So here's the beginning. Through whom, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, here it is, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, you and I, if we were saying this, most of us would say, look, I've received apostleship if I were Paul to bring about the faith for the sake of his name right isn't that the goal we want to bring people to faith but he says obedience of faith at the end of romans romans 16 this is his <clears throat> his benediction now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Not not just the faith, the obedience of faith. Why would he use that language? Because he's like saying, look, there's a difference between professing something and professing and practicing it. The first one, not real. The second one, legit. So the goal of my ministry, says the Apostle Paul, is to bring about obedience that is driven by faith. And true faith always produces obedience. Just like great leaders of the Christian church for ages, guys like Jonathan Edwards and others who are dealing with this question, how do you know someone's a real Christian? They answered the question by saying, Eh, you should listen to their profession, but their profession is proven out by actually how they practice. The language in that passage, remember, it says, you stiff-necked people. That little phrase, stiff-necked, actually comes from a, from a farming image. So what you used to do when you got this young oxen, you would hook them up in your, uh, oh, dude, I forgot it again. What is it called when you put them together in the, The yoke. I should know that, right? They put them together in the yoke. We usually with another one, and the older one tends to try to, to, you know, to guide it. But when the farmer needs to poke and get that young oxen to go another direction, he takes a stiff, a stick with a with a point at the end of it, and he jabs him in the neck. Right, go go right. Usually, that makes the oxen go, yeah, okay, go, but some of them are stiff-necked. You poke them, and they just keep going, and you're like, poke like we do with a horse. Get going, you dumb horse. But they don't move. They don't turn. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They're hooked up. Everything looks right, and they get poked and they don't move. You see, you see the image, you stiff necked people. There are Christians who are stiff necked. They get the word of God. The Lord says, no, I need you to go right because the way that you're living is not in line with the gospel you profess. And so poke, here's the word of the Lord, right? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Poke, go that way. And there are Christians who are stiff necked who are like, no, I'm not going to. And if there's anything that this passage, Stephen is saying, is that, look, you're not real. True discipleship requires profession, which is matched by practice. All right, second point. That was the first one. You guys are in deep trouble, right? Okay, these are quicker, okay? The second one, here you go. The true discipleship also begins with the most unexpected people. And so just on the heels of that, so uh, Stephen finishes his sermon. And this is what happened again. Uh, They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him, and then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And... The witnesses, meaning those people who heard what Stephen said, laid down their garments. Why would you lay down your garments? Um, well, you got to free up the arm for some throwing, right? You don't want to have a cloak on top of you, you know, wear your winter coat. It's much easier if you take it all off, take it off. It's like if you're going to go fight, guys. You ever see guys like that? They're like, okay, let's go, you know? Now we got to get dressed again. All right. Well, that's what happened. They laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first time we meet this guy. For those of you, of course, who have been in the church before you, you, for a while, you're like, hey, wait, that's, that's the apostle Paul, the guy who wrote all the, the Bible. Oh, yeah, that's right. But the first time we meet him, he's actually, you know, playing coat room clerk for all the people who are stoning Stephen to death. You follow his story, of course, and you you realize in Acts nine that it gets worse. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Listen, when he's going to bind them and bring them to Jerusalem, his plan for them is not to bring them and have a cup of tea or even just have a trial. His plan is to make sure that his murderous threats find their realization. Now, as he went on his way, so this guy's, he's a bad guy. He's a straight enemy of the Lord. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, the city, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, do you remember when Stephen was there and he was talking about the guy who was standing at the right hand of the throne of God? Yeah, that was me. I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting, dude. And if those of you who know the story, of course, he, this guy ends up going and goes blind and the Lord gets a, 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 a prophet to come and to speak to him and conversion. And then he's like, hey, I would like to meet all of the, the apostles. And of course the apostles are like, do we really meet with this guy? I do not want to meet with this guy. He's either going to live tweet it or kill me. Or both. So, I and mean, we're not doing it. I don't want to do it. But they finally meet together. One thing leads to another. Paul starts on a mission trip. He ends up becoming Christian of Christians. And at one point, while he's in prison in the book of Philippians, he says these words This same guy who held the coats said, It is my eager expectation. This guy's in prison. He expects to die. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Dude, guys, he became Stephen. The greatest enemy in the early church of the church became the guy who he held the coats for when they were killing him. I think the Lord loves this kind of irony. I really, I really do. My point is when we see Saul at Stephen's death, it looks like there's no hope for him, but nothing could be further from the truth because even the most ardent opponents of Jesus are not out of his reach. And because that's the case, you and I ought to act, act appropriately what do you mean act appropriately? So what I mean is the people who are like standing against the church, whether politically or socially or whatever, the people who are standing over and against the church, that Jesus has a track record of actually saving those people. I think that he loves the irony. So how should you act? Well, Paul himself having this history and background, he's like, well, here's how you act. He's talking to his protege, Timothy, who's a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And this is Paul's like, last letter, these are his last words. So this is an old pastor giving a young pastor some advice on how to deal with opponents. And Paul knew a little bit about what it looked like to deal with opponents. He said, nah, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Can we, can we pause right here? Have nothing to do with Twitter, right? Amen, face, uh, right? Have nothing to do with ignorant, foolish controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to everyone. Able to teach. Look, he needs to know what he's talking about. He needs to have, you know, his facts and his doctrine under, uh, you know, well, well-sourced and clear. But he needs to patiently endure evil, correcting his opponents with What? gentleness because God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they look they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his way near his heart there he's like listen I know there's a whole bunch of people who are going to be pushing back against the Christian church and they're going to seem really mean and your your temptation is going to be like (laughs) start screaming at them and have public fights and everything like that But that's not your job, Timothy. Your job actually is to respond in graciousness and kindness because who knows? They might end up like me, says Paul. One of the greatest stories that I know of in the Christian church in the last number of years was this woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And if you've never read her book, The Secret Life, or sorry, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, you need to. It is her story about how she came from Uh, her former life to become a Christian. And what was her former life? Well, she was at Syracuse University. She was a professor of English, I think, and gender studies. And she embraced much of what the gender studies idea uh, espoused. In that, she was a lesbian and she led the LGBTQ uh, groups on campus. She was an ardent opponent of the Christian faith. In fact, got so ardently opposed to it that she decided she was, going to write, um, she was going to write a book about the Bible. She didn't understand why it is that all these Christian people are so mean to people of the LGBTQ. They, they, they claim love, all these things, but why are they so mean to them? And so she decided, look, I'm going to write a book about it. She started, though, by writing an article about a Christian organization called the Promise Keepers. Some of you remember what that is. In 1990, it was a big men's group that filled stadiums. And, and the, the article was mean. Like it... I mean, I mean mean from a Christian point of view. It was like, no, this is, this, this prom keeper is awful and terrible. And and of course, you know, she's going to get letters in response to this. And these are the days where you, you know, you actually wrote letters and sent it to the person who you hate. So she got a whole bunch of hate mail from a whole bunch of people. I hate you and this is terrible. and blah. So she had a box by the side of her desk and it was for the hate mail. She also had a box on the other side of her desk that was for the fan mail because a lot of people were writing in saying, finally, sticking it to the Christian. So she had, you know, she'd get a letter and she'd say, "Uh, fan mail, uh, hate mail, uh, fan mail, fan mail, help me, hate mail, right? And she'd divide these things up until she got one letter from a reformed pastor that she held and she didn't know what to do with. I mean, on the one hand, it was not agreeing with her. But on the other hand, the kindness of the words, and the invitation to dialogue was just not what she had heard. She's, ah, I don't know how to do this. She rolls, crumbles it up, throws it away, goes and eats dinner, does what she's done. She comes back later, and she's just perplexed by it. She picks it up, opens it up, and on the bottom, there's there's contact information. And she says, oh, you know what? I'm going to put this guy's money where his mouth is, and so I'm going to contact him. So she contacts him. And he says, come on, and come over to my house. We'd love to, me and my wife, we'd love to have you over and we'd like to get to know you and stuff. And of course, she goes in there, you know, with her armor up. She told me so many stories about Christians are going to beat you up. She goes in her armor up and she sits down and has this lovely meal with these people who ask her questions about her upbringing and her her likes and dislikes and the things that she's interested in, and they share common viewpoints on many different other issues. Of course, they do also share that the reason we're getting together is we disagree about this, but I've got questions for you, and I'm sure you have questions for me. Let's talk about these sort of things. We should be able to. She had such a great time that she was like, I would love to do this again. And they said, really? Come on back next week. So she came back next week, and then the week after, and the week after, and the week after, and the week after, and eventually she was talking to some of her LGBTQ friends, and she was saying, listen... I, I mean, I, I don't know what to do with these people and the Bible. Have you guys read the Bible? And one of her friends said, look, the, this Bible, Rosaria, this is changing you. It's changing you. And she says, yeah, but what if it's true? So she started going to church privately, quietly in the back. And then she started going to church again at this dear couple's church over and over and over again. She went to church fighting with the Bible. I'm writing this book that I hate the Bible and yet I don't hate the Bible. And I don't know what to do with these people. And then, as she wrote about her conversion, here's what she said. Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. Open handed and naked in this war of worldviews. Ken was there. It's the pastor, Floyd, his wife, was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. My conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank hesitatingly at first and then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. You never know who you're talking to. it might be mean and harsh but you never know it might be a Rosario in there it might be a paul right i have 2 minutes for this last one piece of cake true discipleship finally results in looking like jesus just show you the last two of your verses of this passage um, As they were stoning Stephen, uh, stoning was actually, there were rules around it. One of the things that you had, what you had to do is you took somebody to the edge of a cliff and you dropped them off cliff. It was just a big, you know, they dug out a huge hole and they dropped you in there. It was deep enough that you couldn't climb out, but they dropped you in there and they were hoping that by pushing you down there, you would break a bunch of things. You would roll you over on a chest, pull you near the edge of it, and they would take a boulder and they'd drop the boulder on your head. If that didn't work, They would have like a backup boulder. They'd roll it and they'd drop it on your head. You can hear, listen, it's organized. That's my point, it's organized. This is not organized. This is mob rule. This is a bunch of people ripping off their clothes, handing them to Paul and just throwing rocks down there. We're a bird, just pummeling him. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, here's the crazy thing. If you look back in the first chapter of Luke's story, okay, so there's two books, Luke and then Acts. If you look in Luke and you try to find words like this, you find them in the mouth of Jesus himself. Two others, this is when he's being crucified, Who are criminals were led away, put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments a little bit later. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You see the similarity, yeah? It's almost like Luke is saying, Stephen is just like Jesus. That Stephen has been formed in the image of Jesus, Tommy tried to get into this point last week and he was absolutely right. When you go and you start to compare these two people, you realize that both Jesus and Stephen were arrested falsely. Both were falsely accused before the Sanhedrin with the same charge that they would destroy the temple. They were taken both out of the city to be killed. They both asked God to forgive their murderers and both commit themselves into God's hand. You see, Stephen is walking in the footsteps of Jesus, which is exactly what God is doing in the lives of every Christian. He is taking you and me and he is placing us in the footsteps of Jesus. The Puritans used to call it that Christ be formed in you. If you asked a Puritan and you said, what is the goal of God in this life? That Christ be formed in In you, where'd they get that? Well, they got it from the book of Romans for those God foreknew, right? Those God foreknew, these are Christian, the elect people of God. He also predestined, oh, predestination. But notice the predestination is toward a goal, what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God doing in your life? I don't know what the Lord's doing in my life. I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you. He's forming Christ in you. Every circumstance, every moment, every twist in the road, every letdown, every success and every joy is forming Christ in you. That's His goal. It's not your comfort. It's not my comfort. It's not my expectations. It's the formation of Christ that we might be inconformed to the image of his son. I mean, the language sounds like a sculptor, right? So let me finish with this. Uh, there's an old story about a, about a sculptor. This guy goes in and he's looking at all the sculptures of this great sculptor and he just, he's so overwhelmed. A lot of them are animals and stuff, they're cut out of marble, you know, like Michelangelo stuff and he's like, wow, this is amazing. So he goes to the sculptor and he gets a chance to talk to him. The sculptor's working on this, because he's got a big, big block of marble in front of him and little pieces of it are coming down and you can start to see the emergence of a bear. He's sculpting a bear. And so this, this fan comes to the sculptor and says, man, I just want to know, how do you do this? Like what, what is going on in your mind? How do, you, how do you see, how do you make this into a bear, this big block of marble? And the sculptor says, well, It's easy. I just cut off everything that doesn't look like a bear. Right. So so that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. That's what God the Father is doing in your life. He's cutting off everything that doesn't look like Jesus. I've met some of you. There's a lot to cut off, right? You've met me. You know there's a lot to cut off. When the Lord takes his chisel to you, it's not a comfortable experience, right? There's a little hammer and his chisel and he's knocking pieces off that, hey, I needed that. No, you don't. We complain, I didn't expect you to cut that part off. Yeah, but I need to. And at the end of time, what God will have done is he will have taken you in your big, marble block, and he he will have taken you and he will have cut off all of these pieces and you will be a magnificent work of art. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And he will take this and he will place it on a pedestal for all eternity. Everyone will look at it and think, you did that with that? Yeah, yeah, check this out. This is Saul, hmm? Here's Rosaria, pretty good. Here's Jeff, here's you. What a day that'll be. It's a grind, I know, but the outcome will be magnificent. Let me pray for us, Father, I'm thankful for your kindness and your love for us that produces these things. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, uh, to see our circumstances through that lens, that you have a plan for us. It's not the plan that we have, but it's very explicit. You want to form Christ in us. So, Father, would you help us to deal with the things around us and the things that are happening to us uh, through that idea that you are making a great sculpture, Father, and that would you give us hope, Spirit, would you come and give us hope? Would you also convict us in the places, Lord, where we're being poked by the word of God and that we're not willing to submit? Convict us, especially those of us, Father, who claim Christian faith but don't do anything about us. Would, would, would you call us back to you? Would you remind us once again that the answer is to profess again faith and to, and to submit to your authority? We love you, and we're thankful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.